Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for board game news and reviews. Hold on to your pants, it's time for a special episode. Hey, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Paul Grogan. Good afternoon, how are you doing? Good. I was sorry I sounded so confused. Usually I say Mike. I'm not used to somebody else being on the other line. <laughs> I can change my name to Mike if you want. It's only £15 and then it's we can come back in two weeks when it's all officially changed and then I can be Mike. There you go. <laughs> Paul Grogan, aka Mike. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we'll see you in two weeks. <laughs> all right. Well, today we're going to be talking about a game that's at the top of the hotness on Board Game Geek and that is Arc Nova. Yeah, you see... It's at the top of the hotness on the day we're recording this, but it might not be when this goes... No, i tell you what, it is going to be when this goes out, isn't it? I mean, Tom Vassell gave it a 10, and I feel like ever since then, it's all anybody can talk about. Yeah, now I'm of the... I, I like Tom. Tom's great, and I think Tom's great for the hobby. And there's a lot of things that I agree with Tom on. I am concerned by the amount of power that Tom wields in the board game hobby. No, concern is the wrong word. It's like... There's lots of us that have been saying this is an amazingly fantastic game and nobody listens. And then suddenly Tom Vassell gives it a 10 and suddenly the whole world's talking about it. And it's like, he's very influential, but on this one, I mean, I, I, I love the game. I think it's great. I'm not sure I'd give it a 10, but... And we'll get into that. But I mean, let's be honest. We're giving them a lot of credit for this, but I do think it's the buzz coming from everybody, right? I think it's you playing it all the time. We've played it three times on our channel now. Man yeah. vs. Meeple's been playing it. Jeremy Howard, I know, loves the game. Yeah. And John gets games played it too. So I know it's not just Tom on this one. Look, yeah. he, he liked Duel of Ages too. And that one never, <laughs> never did Did anything. he? Oh, yeah. I, I take back what I said about agreeing with. No, I agree with Tom on some things, but there are other games which I have completely the opposite opinion to him on. I'd forgotten that. Wow. Oh, yeah. It was his number one game for years. Well, I was, I'm a podcast listener from way back, way yeah, before yeah, yeah. I got into YouTube stuff. In fact, it wasn't until I started doing YouTube content that I started watching more gaming YouTube content right. just to see what other people were doing. Yeah. Now that you mentioned it, that's, that's brought back a memory for me because I've been into the, I mean, I've been in the gaming hobby, well, forever. And yeah, you've just brought back a memory that Tom Vassell said that Duel of Ages was his number one game. Yeah, that's a game actually going off at a complete side tangent that I was super excited about when it came out and nearly got it. And oh, I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> yeah, well, I did. Right. I'm the dummy that got it with the master <laughs> set expansion and all that. Yeah. I had all this stuff, played it a few times and it was just, it was too much for me. Yeah. Like for what it was, it was too much. And then Duel of Ages 2 came out. One of my buddies bought it. He was super excited about it. And yeah, it's fine. It's fine. It's not, right. it would not be my number one game. Right. But uh, I mean, we're a co-op gaming podcast. So yeah, we yeah, mostly yeah. talk about co-op stuff anyway, which is funny because we're talking about Arc Nova today. So obviously we're going to focus more on the solo mode. The solo mode, yeah. <laughs> that we do on the cooperative mode or competitive mode. But we'll talk about that a little bit as well. But Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your channel? Because you've got your own content that you're creating. Yeah. So yeah, my name is Paul Grogan. I've been a gamer for, well, forever. And I've got my own YouTube channel called Gaming Rules, and I've been doing this full-time now. I left my full-time job, oh, is it seven and a half years ago now, something like that? So I'm a, I'm a full-time content creator. I do various pieces of work in the industry. I'm a writer and editor of rulebooks, or was. We'll come on to that in a minute. But I create a lot of content for the channel. So I do a lot of tutorial videos. I do a lot of playthrough videos. And I do lots of other videos as well, like, you know, live Q&As, monthly video logs, and things like that. But basically, yeah, 
I'm a gamer through and through. It's my hobby. It's my passion. It's now my work. I live and breathe board games constantly. A lot of people are always asking me, Paul, what, what do you do when you're not playing board games? I'm like, well, I sit downstairs and put on some TV and paint the miniatures for a board game. No, 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 <laughs> Paul. No, nothing to do with board games. Oh, um, yeah. I go shopping and that's it. No, it's literally gaming's my my whole life. On the rulebook thing, I've recently announced that I've stepped back from the rulebook work. So one of the biggest changes for me this year, probably the biggest change since I actually launched the channel, is that I'm I'm giving up a lot of my paid work. So basically about 50% of my income is, is going to disappear because I'm no longer going to be a writer and editor of rule books. I'm doing a little bit of consultancy, but other than that, I'm not doing it. And what I'm doing is I'm relying on the, uh, the patron support. So like, like many content creators, I do rely on the financial support of my patron. And that's been going really well over the last 12 months to the point where I've been able to say, right, I tell you what, I can actually, it, it's financially viable for me to do this, to step away from the rulebook work. There's going to be a bit of a hit, obviously, when I go into it. And as part of that, I've been doing a Patreon drive to get to 800 patron supporters. There wasn't a time limit on it. But since I made the announcement of stepping back from rulebook work, the patron support, the, there's been a lot of increase in it, which has been great. And I can tell you, at the time we're recording this video right now, I am at 800 patron supporters. Oh, wow. Congratulations. I've achieved that goal and I've got some special plans of what I'm going to do when I got to 800. And yeah, we'll, we'll see where it goes here. But as I say, it was a difficult decision because we sat down, me and my partner, Vicky, sat down and we looked at it and we, were, we worked out literally, you know, the finances of how much money did I make last year from rulebook editing work? And then she said, and if you're going to stop that, we're not going to have that money anymore. And I'm like, yeah, I know, but I need to stop it because it was causing all sorts of problems for me in my personal life, stress related and everything else. So it's primarily health related reasons that I had to step away from it. But Oh, oh yeah. Rulebooks are awful. Yeah. <laughs> they're literally awful to work on. And people are like, why are rule books so bad all the time? Because they're hard. They're hard. That's why. <laughs> really and you hard. think you've got it right and you think you've got everything down and somebody goes, well, what happens in this situation? You go, yeah. oh yeah, I should probably cover that, huh? And you know, you, thankfully, th through the generosity of many other people looking through it. So I do game design as well with my partner, Mike. Yeah. And it's tremendously hard. You put it out, thankfully, again, to people for looking through it and trying to play test for you, doing blind play tests, stuff like that. But it's amazing how much stuff comes up yeah. that you just totally missed or forgot about because yeah. it's obvious, right? And it's not obvious. That's the problem. Yeah. Num number one piece of advice that I'm going to give everybody for free on rule books is do not underestimate the amount of time and effort that it will take to get your rule book done. And yeah, as you say, one of the reasons why we see awful rule books for games, which are still coming out here and here and there, that doesn't mean somebody sat down and just went, oh, open up Notepad, start typing it, press print. Somebody spent weeks or months on that rule book. And we're looking at it and going, this is the worst rule book I've ever read. And it's awful. And yeah. the examples are wrong. And the images are wrong. And th this isn't covered. And that contradicts this. They probably spent tens and dozens and dozens of hours on that rule book. But they are hard. And it requires. Lots of people involved, lots of checking, not just proofreading, but proper checking, checking that everything's right and everything else. It's a, it's a massive job. And I'm not saying, oh, I don't want to do hard work because I am a hard worker. The problem, that the main problem that I had is taking on too many large projects all at the same time. Now, if I only had, for example, I'm working on ISS Vanguard at the moment. If I only had ISS Vanguard rulebook to do, and that's all I was working on, great, I'll do it and I can work on it. But it's when I'm working on the rule books for maybe 
four or five heavy games, like super heavy games, all at the yeah. same time, because for one reason or another, the project has been delayed. And they said, Paul, we, we, we're going to go back to development. It's going to be delayed by six weeks. And I'm like, right, okay. And then in six weeks' time, I'm on the next one. And then there's another one that should have been done three months ago, that unfortunately. Right. <laughs> and suddenly I find myself for half an hour first thing in the morning working on Batman Gotham City Chronicles, then another half an hour on Frostpunk, then an hour with Vital Lacerda, then another half an hour here. And you got to keep it all straight. Yeah, exactly. That's That's been my life for the last few years. And I've just gone, as much as I enjoy it and as much as I think I'm doing a good job, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to open too much dirty laundry, so I won't name yeah. the publisher, but we were working with a publisher and it was like six months to a year after the Kickstarter. Wow. And okay. so publishers are, wait, wait, wait. Oh my gosh, everything needs to be done now. This is this is right. that story. Six months after the Kickstarter, it might have been nine months after the Kickstarter was done, and we had turned in all our files, everything. And again, we're we're designers. We're not mm-hmm. you know, rule book editors, anything yeah. else. He's like, oh my God, I need this done today or the project's going to be late. I said- Project's already late. What are you yeah. talking about? You need it today. Like Mike and I are at work right now. We can't just drop everything, exactly. go yeah. home and start working on this. Like, you know, they want us to proof this stuff. It's like, well, we'll proof it, but we need a day. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? It's like, it's like no contact, no contact. And all of a sudden you need to do all of this right now. It's like, yeah. are you, you're kidding me, right? Yeah. And that's the thing. I, I've spent, you know, the last four or five years working most evenings, maybe three out of five evenings, and most weekends having to do some here and there, just because there's been there's been too much stuff. And you know, for, for you, for example, you and Mike, you've got day jobs, so therefore you're having to fit this other stuff in outside of that. And people look at me and go, "Well, Paul, isn't your day job to do this?" And it's like, "Well, yeah, but I've already got three times as much as anybody can do in a normal day." So, but anyway, that's that that's the past. I'm still wrapping up a couple of rule book projects now, but they are getting to the very late stages. And then this year is going to be, yeah, more content and more videos on the channel. Well, that's good for all of us. So let's talk about your channel. I assume because you're off of work when other people are working, that a lot more of your content is going to be solo. And obviously solo leads to co-op as well. Most co-op games can easily be played solo. So I assume there's going to be a lot more of that on your channel, which obviously our fans are going to enjoy. I became a solo gamer probably about two and a half, three years ago-ish. And prior to that, I was not a solo gamer at all for a couple of reasons. First of all, I have absolute terrible short-term memory. So whenever I'm playing a solo game or whenever I try to play a solo game, it's like, right, I'll do this and I'll do that. And then I'll get distracted by the cat running past the window. And then I'll go, <laughs> and literally, and then I've completely forgotten where we are. And I'm yeah. like, so how many actions have I had? Two, three? Did I, did I do that? Did I do that? And I get frustrated by myself. And then I just think, oh, I, I, and I, I'm somebody who's got to play things by the rules. It's got to play things right and everything else. And it gets to the point where I just though, I can't, I can't remember this. So playing solo games was because I, I always had the, the luxury. I was fortunate in that I always had friends that come around and I play lots of games with other people. And I play games online with people as well that I never really did the solo gaming. And then this was about the time when I started the solo gaming is the internet in the town where I live got upgraded and suddenly I can live stream. Prior to that, <laughs> and people will, people say, well, why did you get into live streaming? I wanted to do live streaming a long time before I could. And then they upgraded the internet. Now that I do live streaming, I do a ton of solo gaming. In fact, somebody asked me how many solo playthrough videos did I do last year? And I haven't been and added it up, but it's roughly between 60 and 70 last year. So oh, wow. I do a lot of solo playthroughs. And the reason I enjoy it is because it's not really solo. It is, 
but I'm live streaming it to a live audience who are with me on the journey, who are chatting to me, and more importantly, are keeping an eye. So when I go, how many actions have I had? They go, two. And I'm like, right, and I carry on. Yep. And, and the other thing as well, doing live streaming, is that I'm, I've got the, uh, another screen to the side of me with the YouTube video playing, and I just scrub back about a minute, and I go, did I, did I pay for that or not? Scrub back. No, I didn't pay for it. Right, I'll pay for it. Oh, you're 10 steps ahead of me. I do have it streaming on my phone right yeah. next to me, but there's no scrubbing back in the middle of the game. <laughs> like I totally rely on the live audience to help me. Right. And if they're not there to help me, I know I'm going to get a comment later saying, hey, you messed yeah. that up. It's like, yep. Yeah, oh, well, I did. <laughs> what, do you, what am I going to do at this point? It's over. Yeah. So yeah, so I've been doing a lot of solo gaming on the channel. And as you say, now that my rulebook work is starting to come to an end, I'm going to have more free time during the working day, which means because I can't, I mean, thankfully, I've got four or five people who live local to me who are available during the days. So I do some playthroughs during the day, but all of that requires organization. You've got to contact them. You've got to ask when people are free. You've got to coordinate them coming around. You've got to do all of this. Solo games is like, like I've just finished a game of Lost Ruins of Arnak. I didn't have to call anybody else. I didn't have to arrange anybody else coming around. I just got it out, did it, played it, and it was fantastic. And then it's done. By the way, all right, so this isn't a Lost Runes of Arnak podcast. We're obviously going to get to Ark Nova in a minute yeah. here. <laughs> but man, I just discovered that one for solo not long ago. I've played it three times this past week right. with my family. I played it with my daughter, my son, and my wife. And you're like, what does this have to do with solo? Every time I taught them solo, they played solo games. I was just there running it for them, yep. teaching them the rules where they were playing. It yep. is the best way to play to to introduce that game to somebody. Now my wife's like, oh, I want to play a competitive. Oh, that game is so good solo and does such a good job of not overburdening the player, not mm-hmm. overburdening the teach. It lets you focus on the game itself yeah. and explaining because the rules aren't that hard to that game, but there's like 50 little things you can do mm-hmm. and just making sure they understand all those options is important yeah. and it's hard to do while you're playing your own game. Yeah, so, exactly. The solo mode in that game is so good. And even though it's pretty easy out of the base box, that's perfect for first time players. They yep. love that when they scored like 70 to the to the AI's 30 or 40 or whatever. They don't have a problem with that. My game this morning, my practice game, I played on difficulty level two and I beat it quite easily. And then I played the live stream that I just did on difficulty level four and I beat that as well. It's been a while since I played it, so I didn't want to go in and full difficulty. Um, right. But I think once you've played it a lot, you can beat it on difficult on the highest difficulty level, which is why they released the super hard difficulty level tiles, which you can get on their website that make it even harder. Well, and you could even play it as an app. You don't even have to have tiles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just play it right on the website. So you can print and play the tiles if you want, but if yeah. you don't have them or whatever, just you just pull website. up the app. Not only do they have the harder difficulty cards, but you can play through a full campaign there. I haven't done that yet. You have though, right? I've played the first episode of the campaign and that's all I've played. Oh, okay. Really want to play more because I've got friends who've played it and they said it's fantastic. So I really enjoyed the first first episode and it's just a matter of time. Now, is that solo only or is that one, can, can you play that multiplayer? No, I think campaign? the campaign is solo only. Yeah, great for our audience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, lots more solo playthroughs coming to the channel this year. I mean, you know, if I didn't do enough last year, there'll, there'll probably be more of them this year. But it, it's fantastic. Playing along with a live audience that, that is watching is great. But before we go any further, I want to thank our Patreon backers. Today, we're thanking Christian Rubiano, a co-op MVP, Jan, a co-op lover, and Cody Christopher, a co-op MVP. 
So Christian, Jan, Cody, thank you so much for your support and thank you all for all you do for us, whether it's liking our videos on YouTube or our YouTube stream channel, whether it's subscribing to the podcast, whether it's joining our Discord community and playing games with us live. We appreciate all you do. All right, Paul. Well, without further ado, let's get into Arc Nova. So what we do here, first, we're going to talk a little bit about the theme, a little bit about the rules. We're not going to get into a full rules breakdown, but just a little bit about it. And then we're going to talk about our top five points, starting with number five, which is the least important, but still obviously important, or we wouldn't be talking about it, going all the way to our number one point, which is the most important thing. So Arc Nova is about building a zoo, right? Yep, pretty much. Building your own zoo. That's the important thing is that although you're playing the game one to four players, each player is building their own zoo. And the reason why I'm stressing that early is because as soon as this game came out, everybody was comparing it to Terraforming Mars. So I just wanted to get it out there right away. One of the biggest differences between the two games is in Terraforming Mars, you have a central board that you are all playing on together. And in Ark Nova, each player is actually building up their own zoo with no interaction between the zoos on the actual game itself. Yeah, and this game has a lot of mechanisms, but it's really driven by a card river, and I'm sure we'll get into it more. But basically, you have five cards in front of you, and they're in slots one through five. If an, a card is under the five slot, it's going to become a more powerful action. If it's under the one slot, it's going to be a less powerful action. And the actions are simply just adding buildings to your zoo, doing these association actions, which can get you like affiliated zoos and things like that. You're going to be adding animals to your zoo, which are basically cards. You're going to have sponsors you're going to add to your zoo, and then you can draw cards. So they're all pretty straightforward, simple actions. And throughout the game, you can upgrade those actions, but they're they're basically, you're going to do these things. So when you build in your zoo, you're grabbing these polyominoes. So there's a little bit of a polyomino puzzle where you're going to put these buildings in your zoo and they may cover up spots that give you other actions, but you need to build those buildings before you add animals. So that's another card you play and animals you play from your hand, you're using money. So there's a little bit of an economic aspect there where you're using money that you've collected to pay for the animals. So there's a lot of interconnected actions, but basically you're trying to go up on two tracks and they start on opposite ends of the boards and you're trying to get those two tracks to meet. And when those two tracks end up meeting in the solo game, that's how you win. In a competitive game, it triggers the end of the game. But basically, as you're putting animals down, you're going to add it to your appeal track, which is the appeal of your zoo. And then you can do other actions like releasing animals or completing certain goals to move up on the conservation track. And again, when those two tracks hit each other, that's going to signal the end of the game Solo, it's not exactly the same. You're going to have a round timer where these markers move left to right to track the number of actions you do. And then that's going to trigger the end of the game after you've done a certain number of actions. There's other stuff. Again, this isn't a rules overview. Watch Paul's videos. Watch our videos if you want to see a full rules overview. But let's get into our top five things that we think you need to know about the game. So, Paul, as our guest, why don't you start with your number five? So one of the things on my list is not related to the gameplay. So let's talk about that one first, because for some people, the art and the graphic design is irrelevant. And I get that. I get that train of thought. You could play Ark Nova with black and white cards, with scribbled on hand-drawn artwork, and it would be literally exactly the same game. But for me, personally, being quite shallow, the artwork, the graphic design, the presentation, and the overall look at the game enhances the experience. So, for example, if Ark Nova was black and white cards with hand-drawn artwork, I wouldn't enjoy playing it as much as I do with the look that it's currently got, even if it is exactly the same game. 
Now, the artwork in this game is interesting because every single one of the cards, and the cards are unique, there's like 200 and something cards, they're all unique, but it's photos. And historically, any board game that uses photos instead of artwork on cards isn't liked. A lot of people really don't like it, especially when it's like tied into a, an IP, like a, a Star Trek game or something, or a Star Wars game. And rather than having actual artwork, it just uses sort of still images from the TV program or something like that. Certainly from a board gaming thing, that generally is frowned upon. However, I think in this game it works fine. And I actually, when I heard about it and I heard, oh, it's got photos of animals instead of artwork, I was like, all oh, right, another one. And then when I actually got it and I was like, oh, okay, no, this actually works fine. And what's really nice is I think in the back of the rule book, it lists a lot of the photos are all publicly available or whatever, but the ones which aren't, which they had to get permission to use, they're all in there fine. So yeah, the artwork for me, it's, it's photos on, on cards and stuff like that. That's not a problem for me. How do you feel about the artwork? Yeah, I mean, it's not like terraforming Mars art, right? <laughs> Where, you know, yeah. To speak of the game that it's compared to, because there are some photos in there and then there's some icons in there and then there's some hand-drawn stuff. I like, I don't know, like terraforming Mars, the art is distracting. Yeah. And here, it's not only not distracting, but I think it's beautiful. Yeah. They did a really good job. You know, Beth Sobel, I think, is the artist for Wingspan. She did uh-huh. a great job there. But honestly, the, the pictures here, I think, are, are, are comparable yeah. to that artwork. And it's interesting because they don't always look like pictures either. Some of them kind of look like artwork. I don't know if they use some kind of hazing effect for some of them. Or, yeah, or some of the did. cards have a have a filter effect over them to make them look slightly different. It's a particular kind of card, and I can't remember exactly which which one. But on the whole, it's all it's all photos of, of animals and stuff like that. But that's the artwork. The graphic design, I looked at and I was initially... I mean, the thing is with graphic design, as long as it's clear and it's functional and you don't have all of the icons looking the same and you don't have like a red icon and the same icon in green, things like that, right. then the graphic design is, as long as it's clear and it's functional, then it's fine. However, the actual icons in the game look like they're from a game from 20 years ago. You know, the <laughs> reputation icon and a lot of the other icons, you're looking at them and you're like, oh, it's a bit simple. But as I say, that was an initial impression. And does it fit with the gameplay? Does it get in the way of the gameplay? Is it clear? And it's all very clear. So the iconography is yeah. clear, even though graphically it does look a little bit dated. I think that's the important thing. And there's a whole icon reference. And I mean, I, I remember being overwhelmed when I first did it. But going back after not playing now for a month and just picking it up, it was very easy to pick back up again. Yeah. And and that icon guide helps you with some of the more obscure ones. Mm-hmm. But most of them are very straightforward. And it, it doesn't get in the way of gameplay, which is no. the best thing you can say about it. Yeah, absolutely. So that was my number five. Yep. So my number five is the goals and the upgrades from the board. So one of the actions you can do is you can complete these goals. And it might be get animals from Africa. And that will have three different goals on it. And you'll get some of these in your hand as well. These like goal cards that one of the cards you could pick up and you could play to the board as well. The way it works is very interesting because the earlier you do it in the game, you might get a ongoing benefit. So similar to Scythe or games like that, where you're taking something from one place and putting it somewhere else, or Gaia Project, these other games where you're taking stuff from your board and putting it to these goals. That works this way too. And they have some of the benefits you get from that. You get one time only as you're moving it to that goal card. 
but other ones are ongoing benefits. And you say, well, why would I want to put five animals up there when I can only put two? Well, they give you another benefit for doing the goal as well. You get a certain amount of conservation points based on what level of the goal you do. And in a competitive game, you're racing other people to get that spot. So if somebody else gets the three spot or the five spot, even if you have five of those animals, you're going to have to take a lower spot and get less conservation points. So in the competitive game, it's very clever. I think in the solo game, it's very clever too, though, because you really some of those goals you'd like to accomplish early in the game to get some of these ongoing incomes. Like one of them is put a two space pen out on your board. That means you don't have to take a build action to do that. You just have that ready for when you get animals for it. Now, it's different on different boards, too, and I like how they made that one of the unique differences between some of these special maps they have. There's a starter map, there's a map zero, which is kind of the generic one, but then there's eight other maps that you can get, and this is one of the things that changes from map to map. But I love how not only are you getting these goal conservation points, it gives you something to shoot for, something to think about at the beginning of the game when you're deciding what cards to keep, what cards to get. Not only is that part of the equation, but also what income you get from this. It's kind of a two-pronged benefit. And I just loved how they did that. I thought it was very clever. So this is actually one of my points as well. So um, yeah, Is that your number I, four? <laughs> I think I had this down as actually, uh, I think I had this down as number three, but we can talk about it now because otherwise we're going to have to go back and talk about it again. Sure. So yeah, I, as you said, these are, these are conservation projects. And at the start of the game, there will be three of them out. I think you put four in a four-player game, but I've never played it four-player. Don't think I ever want to play it four-player because it would be too long. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they are literally, right, here's these three. And I think there's 11 of them and you choose three out of the 11 and you go, right. And, and they're called conservation projects, but they're like goals or objectives or whatever. And as you say, one of them might be for having a number of Africa icons in your zoo. And there's like three spaces on each card, but each player can only go on there one. And there'll be like, there's one space, which is that if you've got two of those icons, you can go on this space and you'll get two conservation points. But if you've got three of them, you get three conservation points. And if you've got five of them, you get four conservation points. So naturally you think, well, uh, I'll save up and I'll get five. And then I get four conservation points because I'm only allowed to go on that card once. But as Peter says, the earlier you do it, the better. And this is because the conservation track there is a really, really juicy bonus once you get to space two. And once you get to space two on the conservation track, you either get an additional worker or you flip one of your cards over. They are both massively powerful earlier on in the game. So there is this balance. Do you think, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to just get two Africa icons and then I'm going to grab the card, hopefully before somebody else does, because once the space is occupied, nobody else can use it, to get that early conservation bonus. Or if you decide to hang back, and say, no, I'm going to wait until I've got five, you might be three quarters of the way through the game. And then you've missed out on those bonuses. So yeah, it's a nice balance of, do you try and grab it early when it is least efficient, but that gets you these rewards early, therefore you can reap the benefit of them, or do you hang fire? Now, the last multiplayer game I played of this, I, I got a little achievement, which I've ticked off my list of achievements, which is the three starting conservation projects I got the biggest space on each of them. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't win the game, but... <laughs> <laughs> but, but who cares? But I, you I you did something um, cool. I, I did something cool. So you might think, well, hang on a minute. That just goes against what you said. Well, no, because I managed to get an early conservation card in my hand, and there is a way that you can play extra ones into the game. And I managed to get... I think I got an animal earlier on, and playing the animal actually got me a conservation point. 
and then I did something else that got me another conservation point. So I got to my two quite early on and managed to get that bonus. And then I thought, no, I'm going to, I'm going to try and get the maximum of all of these three. But those, those, those starting conservation projects, as I say, they are three of them. They get dealt out at the start of the game. They never change. They never cycle away. That is effectively saying to all of the players, right, in this game, you're going to score extra points for doing these three things. And therefore, when you are choosing your starting cards or when you're choosing which cards to throw away, you need to be looking at those effectively goals to decide on which, which cards you're going to play or not. Yeah, and actually the game I played earlier today, I had one of the starting goals in my hand that I knew I could get from the cards that I already had in my starting hand as well. So I played out two animals pretty quickly and then I played the starting goal from my hand, not even doing any of the ones from the right. table because it just worked out that way. And I got those two conservation points and I upgraded. Now, for anybody who watches that video, I was negative 23 points at the end of the game, right. <laughs> which is a loss <laughs> in solo games. Uh, so it didn't work out well for me, but I felt cool doing it. And that's that's why, I mean, we'll get to that in final thoughts. Yeah. But did you want to talk about the ones that come from the deck as well? Yeah, well, the ones that come from the deck are, are interesting because there's these 11 starter ones, but then I think about 20% of the deck is also other conservation projects. So during the game, and you might even start with some of these in your hand, or you might draw them through the game. You can put these other goals down, but unlike the three that are fixed, these ones that you put down will cycle. So the first one goes down above the association board, the next one goes next to it, the next one goes next to it, but then the next one will push off one of the other ones. So it's interesting with these cards because when you put them down, what you are doing is you are creating a new goal for all players. Except for yourself, because you've already done it. Well, yeah, you put it down and you do it, but you're giving the other players the opportunity to do it also. Yep. And I think the one I put down was the one where you've got to have like a reptile and a partner zoo from the same country as the reptile. And if you've got that, you can do it. And I had that early on. And one of the spaces is like two reputation and two conservation points. So I was like, right, I'll have that one. But then, of course, another player has also got a reptile and a partner zoo from the same continent, at which point they went, oh, thank you very much for that goal. I'll now get that. So you've got to take that into account, although you generally get the best benefit from it. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is getting back to what we said, part of the original point, you're not only getting whatever reputation and conservation from that card itself, you're then clearing something from your board. And the one time benefits are much greater. They're a lot more money. They're a lot more, you know, you get these X tokens, which we'll talk about later to help boost your cards. They're big one time benefits. But if you can get some of those benefits that are recurring and every time you get an income phase, you get them, those can be massive by the yeah. end of the game. Yeah, if you get them early, yeah, removing those cubes from your player board that give you regular boosts every time there's an income, fantastic. Yep. All right. Well, that was just point five, and I guess three as well. Yep. So <laughs> I'll, I'll get to my four then. I'm going to talk more about the solo mode here. Okay. And the thing I love about the solo mode is it's very fast for the AI turns. Sometimes, and one of my favorite solo games of all time is Gaia Project. Mm -hmm. That is not fast to do the AI. I mean, it can be once you get the hang of it, but just learning and it's like, okay, wait, where do I put the planet again? Which one's it close to? What do I do here? You know, there, there's a lot of thinking on the AI turns here. There is no thinking in Arc Nova. You literally just, after you've taken action, you move a cube from the left side of the board to the right side of the board and you're done. And it's basically just tracking turns. And usually I would think that would be unsatisfying 
but I find it very satisfying in this game because it lets me, there's so much to think about on your turn and you Uh have so much cool stuff going on and you just want to do all these neat things that I don't care what the AI does and it doesn't block you up. It doesn't do any of this other stuff. And I don't care. It's it's literally just a timer. But because there's so much other variation in the game, mostly with the cards, both the goal cards and the cards you get in your hand, that I feel like it's a different puzzle each time you play. And yeah. even those different zoo boards you can use, they just make the game different every time you play it. Yeah. So I don't want the AI taking a lot of time. Yeah. We're going to talk later on about what I've classed as sort of the, the three types of solo game. But it's interesting that you mentioned the AI because I'm, I'm gonna—I know you're the host of this show and everything—but I'm, I'm gonna have to disagree with you on there. I don't think this game has an AI. Oh no, it doesn't. Yeah, <laughs> you're the, right. No, the, it, it certainly <laughs> doesn't. Saying, "Oh, the AI's turns are quick to do." I don't want people to have the, the the sort of impression if they don't know the solo game that there is an AI. There isn't an AI in this game. You literally, as, as Peter says, at the end of your turn, you move a cube to the right, and that's it. All you're doing is tracking turns. There is no dummy player there is no automated if it does this it does this it doesn't even take cards from the row it it doesn't try to simulate another player it's literally just a a timer now what it does do is it'll block off some of these cheaper conservation points you can buy later on right yeah it does do that and it triggers when the rest happens which is very different from the way it plays in a competitive game very different there that's one of the because you know a lot of games the solo game is sort of representing the normal game. But in this game, the solo game is different in the way that it works. Because in, 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 a, in a, mu- a multiplayer game, you have this thing called a break track, and players will be moving this cup of coffee up the break track, and then whenever it reaches the end, there'll be a break. And that happens at roughly the same amount of time between breaks. In the solo game, it's completely different. You have like, is it seven turns, and then there's a break? I think it's seven before the first one. Seven. So seven before the first break, then six, then five, then four, then three, then two, then one, which is not how the multiplayer game works whatsoever. The timing of the break, which is one of my points that I'll cover later on, is important in a multiplayer game. And in a solo game, it's predictable. You know exactly when it's going to happen. But the time pressure is so intense. Like, oh man, I need to get this action done before the break. It's more variable in a multiplayer game. And we'll talk about it more when, when you get to that point on your list. But it is very time intensive, like especially it accelerates as the game goes on too. You're yeah. getting breaks more and more frequently and you're like, oh man, I just need to do this thing. Oh man, I just need to do this thing. So yeah, it's very different, but we'll we'll cover that when you get to it. Yeah. But I, I do think it's a smooth, clean solo experience that still yes. leads to enough variety. And you can start with a different amount of appeal at the beginning of the game to vary your difficulty. So it's very easy to vary difficulty as well. You can start with 20, which is a very simple game. You can start with 10, which is a little harder. You can start with zero, which is super hard or anywhere in between, really. Like, I mean, you don't have to stick with the artificial limits that they gave you. You could start with anywhere. Yep, complete customizable difficulty level. And appeal not only does it, affect how far you have to move because again you're trying to get your two markers to meet so the more appeal you have the closer you are to achieving that end game goal in the solo game but it also affects your income the more appeal you have the more income you're going to have so it affects two things in the game in a very satisfying way yeah it's interesting because you know that when i've played the solo game and i've played it on the easiest setting where you start with 20 appeal and i won and i got a score of plus 15 
So you might think, oh, well, you got 15 points, so therefore you should start the next game maybe with only five instead of 20. Right. <laughs> as you say, the, the income of starting with five is like, is like so low. Yeah. So we did on five and three. So my number four is the timing of the break. Now, yeah, as we just talked about, in the solo game, it's absolutely predictable. You know exactly when it's going to happen, seven rounds, then six, then five, then et cetera, et cetera. Now, what happens in a break is important because, first of all, you have to discard down to your hand limit. And at the start of the game, your hand limit is three, and you can build a university to increase it to five. But let's say your hand limit is three, and you've got seven cards in hand, and there's a break, and you're like, I'm losing four cards. Now, if you've gone with a strategy of drawing loads and loads of cards in order to get the ones that you need to fit your strategy, then you might think, that's fine. I'm literally drawing loads of cards, and I know that I'm going to throw some away. But I tend not to do that. I tend to try and not have to discard cards if I can do. In a multiplayer game, you need to keep an eye on that break track. And as Peter mentioned at the start, there is a card row system in the game. So you've got each player will have five cards in these five slots, one to five. And two of those cards can cause the break marker to move. And although I generally, when I'm playing the game multiplayer, I just focus on my own thing. If you are a really good player, you will be looking at the other players. You'll be looking at where those cards are, whether other players can potentially trigger a break. The other thing is money. Money is absolutely critical in this game. And you only really get new money when there is a break because that's, that triggers income. So you need to be timing it right. And the last multiplayer game I played, I basically had spent all of my money and I couldn't really do anything and I was waiting on a break happening so that I could at least get some money. And the other players just carried on playing and carried on doing stuff. And I was there going, I can't really do anything because I'm short on money. And I can't do that because I don't have this. And I'm like, oh, somebody trigger a break. Um, <laughs> and it, it just, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't happening. So the timing of the break is important. Not only what happens when the break comes so you don't get messed up but also making sure that your flow of your game in the order in which you're building things and when you're spending money and everything else, yeah, you've got to factor that in. That is a multiplayer thing rather than a solo thing, because as I say, in a solo game, I mean, you still need to know it. What you don't want to do in a solo game is draw 10 cards when you know there's about to be a break because you're going to just throw them all away. Or get a doubler multiplier. I had a card in my hand that gave me a doubler today, and I just kept looking. I'm like, there's never a good time to play it because I need to be able to do both actions back to back before a break happens. And every time I played my animal cards was right before a break. And I'm like, oh, I need to figure out a way not to do that (laughs) (laughs) so I can use this doubler token for my next action. So, Because in a break, there are these special tokens. There's like doubler tokens, but there's also the, um, the interactive tokens for the multiplayer where you can like poison the other players or hypnotize them or something like this. And those tokens disappear when there's a break. And I remember, again, in one of the games we played, somebody played a card that like poisoned the other players for a bit. And then it's like, okay, next move, break. All, all those do- tokens disappear. It's like, oh, yeah. you know, you've gone to this, all of this effort. All this trouble. So playing animals early in a round apparently is, is good because yeah. uh, I'll have to remember that timing for next time I play because it definitely yeah. bit me a couple times today. I'm like, I never want to play this animal because I'm never going to get the benefit from it. Yeah. And the other interesting thing is I feel like, as you've said, and this kind of gets into my number three point, which is my number three point is this is an economic game as much as it is a card row game, a polyomino game, a playing cards from your hand tableau builder game. There's a lot of things this game is. But for me, one of the key points is that it's an economic game. 
And money is very critical and taking actions to get money is very critical in the game. And I feel more so in multiplayer than solo. I think you can do things to speed up that break happening. You have two cards that move the break track on your turn. So players themselves can take control of how fast or how slow. And again, if you see somebody else needs money and you don't, you can slow down that by not playing those two cards that move the break track marker in a multiplayer game. Early on, it definitely feels economically tense in the solo game. But later on, I kind of feel like I have enough money I can do whatever I want to do. Same in the multiplayer. Once your income goes up, but again, the timing of the breaks in the solo game is different. And you're right, in the solo game, you get near the end and it's like three turns break, two turns break. You're like, yeah, you've you've got loads and loads of money. There are some multiplayer games where you end up with excess money, but not as much as you do in the solo game. Yeah, solo game made like 50 or 60 money at the end of the game. There's just right. nothing to do with it. It's not like end game points or anything else. No. It's just you feel like you, you're a big failure there. It's like <laughs> I got all this money I did literally nothing with. But it, I mean, it does lead to a certain strategy of maybe holding on to some bigger animals to play later in mm-hmm. the game when you know you're going to have money for them. Of course, you have to draw to get those. So there is that. But I do feel like early, it's a very interesting economic puzzle just trying to squeeze out those last couple coins. How do I get a little bit of extra income here? A little bit of extra income there? Because like you said, you can get to points where you have nothing to do because you're out of money. Hmm. I do think it has an interesting arc to it where early on money is so tight and you really, every action matters and building up that economy is really important. And then later in the game, it becomes more about action economy and less about money economy. So my number three is it's a little bit of an economic game. Right. So my number two, the last round timing. And again, this is a multiplayer thing. So in the, in the solo game, you play a fixed number of rounds. And then at the end of the game, if your appeal marker has reached or passed your conservation marker, you've won. And how far it passes is your score. But as long as they have met, you've won the solo game. None of us ever do that. We always look how far it's gone beyond and we write that down and that's our score. But in a multiplayer game, it's interesting because a multiplayer game doesn't have a fixed number of rounds. The end of the game is triggered when one player's markers have met. Now, this is a really interesting thing. And I remember reading a very negative thread about the game on BGG where somebody obviously focused on a particular thing and wrote a load of stuff and everybody disagreed with it because it's the hottest game at the moment. But they, (laughs) they had a point. Let's say, for example... I have the ability in my hand to gain 20 points over two turns. One turn's going to gain me two points, and another turn's going to gain me 18 points. For example, if I was to play the game for two turns, I would get those 20 points. Brilliant. Fantastic. However, if I do the first action, which gets me two points, if that triggers the end of the game, I don't get another turn. Right. So when you trigger the end of the game in a multiplayer game, all other players get one more turn, but not the player who triggered the end of the game. So in that case, you think, well, hang on a minute. I'm sitting on an 18-point card here. If I do this one thing, I get 18 points. But because I did it the other way around, I've actually ended the game early. Now, in that particular situation, there's no way you'd do that. You'd play the 18-point card, your markers would pass, and you'd end up on a score of plus 16, and you know, hopefully you'd win. But the point that I'm making is, when the end of the game is triggered, it is what you do in that last round which is potentially more important than anything else. So if you've got a big, powerful 18-point card, let's say I was 19 points away from my pieces crossing, I could play that 18-point card. So I've played it, it's gone down, the markers haven't crossed, the game is still going on, 
And it's like, oh, right, okay. And then on my next turn, I play the two-point card. My markers have crossed and my end score, my end game score is one point. Well, there is a little bit of end game scoring, but yeah. There's, yeah. It's a tricky one because I'm still trying to work this out in my mind as to whether this person who wrote that thread actually has a point or it actually doesn't matter whether I play that 18-point card. So it's something to be aware about is... Because the end of the game only happens when somebody's markers meet and then all other players get one turn, when you are playing multiplayer, you need to look at the situation very carefully. Well, that's the key, I think, yeah. to that discussion. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer because if that 18 points gets me a final score of one, but that's the winning score because everybody else is negative because exactly. I've triggered it when they're not ready, it's very different than I get five points to get it real close and then I blow up and have a huge score at the end. Yeah. That doesn't matter. This is not a game of... You know, you look at games like Gaia Project, I got 170 points. That means something. Yeah. You could compare that to other people's scores. In this game, it's really just about where you are compared to everybody else. Exactly. So if triggering the end game matters. And that's one thing I'll say. One of my three-player games of this was a actually negative experience for somebody because he felt like he was doing well the entire game. Yeah. And he was literally one point away from triggering the end game. In which situation? I think he may have actually won. But because we all got one more turn, it let us get to the point where we could have these huge last turns. Exactly. And he had kind of... he done. Yeah. Expired himself. And he was one point short, so he couldn't trigger the end game. And that one extra turn really got the rest of us to where we were. And he ended up coming in last place. Yeah. I mean, it it's, can be that tight. Probably, like I said, would have won because we all needed two turns. He just needed the one, but he just ended up a little bit short. Yeah. And I will say... And again, this isn't one of my points, but there's so much fiddly stuff in this game. And I say fiddly in that I do this and I do this and this and this and then three other things over here. And I get a point here that maybe he missed the point throughout the game. It's very possible. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely possible. I mean, yeah, in the last game I played, just speaking of the timing, I was in a position where I I had a, it wasn't like an 18 point card, but I had a big play and it would have got me, say, four conservation points, which is actually huge. That's like 12 actual points. And I yep. had this play, and I knew that if I did it, it's going to trigger the end of the game, and therefore the other players are going to get one more turn. And I was like, but actually, I need two more turns. So I had to do something that wasn't going to trigger the end of the game, but was still going to benefit me and get me close. Like I had to build an enclosure in order to then put an animal in it, or some, something like that. Right. But we then worked it out that if I built the enclosure that would put the animal in it, that enclosure would have filled my board, which would have immediately scored me seven appeal, which would have triggered the end of the game. And I was like, oh no, yeah. So I couldn't do the thing that I wanted to do, you know, and it's the end. Timing. Point point number two for me is timing of the end of the game. Just got to be very careful about it. Yeah. And my number two is probably the thing people mostly think about, but not the thing I think about when I think about the game, which is the unique cards. As you said, there's over 200 unique cards. Each of them are going to dictate how you play the game. Really, the hand of animals, the hand of cards you get, if you love hand management type stuff, because every card you discard, you have to remember, you're not seeing that card later in the game. So just getting a feel for it, looking at the different goals, not only are there end game goals, but you have your own personal goals that you're going to start with at the beginning of the game that you're going to have to decide which of those you're going to go for, because that'll get you a little bit of end game scoring. That might be just what you need to take the lead at the very end. There are just so many cards. And again, I think this is why it's compared to Terraforming Mars, because yeah. every card is completely unique. And the card's in, a, in fairness, look a lot like the Terraforming Mars mm-hmm. cards, right? There's yep. 
things you need that they'll they'll have uh, icons that let you know what they add to your zoo, whether they add a predator to your zoo. And then there's a continent they're associated with. And if you're affiliated with a partner zoo, and it just discounts all those things by three, which is exactly what it discounts for in Terraforming Mars. Yep. Obviously, the card play, they took a lot from Terraforming Mars in. The one thing I'll say is there's typically not a lot of situations where once you put that card on the table, yes, they might have effects that it triggers later on, but you're usually not putting cubes on it or anything else. So some of those cards you have to pay attention to after, but especially the animal cards, a lot of times you just play them down and they do what they're going to do and then you're done with them and then you're moving on to to something else. Now the sponsors are a little bit more complex. A lot of times they will have an ongoing ability, but that just means you only have to look at your sponsor cards each turn. Yeah. I mean, some of the cards, I remember when I first played this, we got it out at Essen in the hotel and we were learning how to play from the rule book and we tried playing it. And some of the cards, I was just like, that's too complicated. I put that away. You know, it was, <laughs> it was full of icons. It was full of text. I didn't understand it. I was still doing that six games in. This isn't a simple game. This is a heavy game. And a lot of the cards, when they were coming out, I was just like, my brain is already melting. I've had enough. I'm at the point now where I'm comfortable with the cards. I still don't know all of the cards in the game, but at least I know the game well enough that when one of these cards comes out that's like covered in text and covered in icons, I'm not scared about it anymore. I look at it and I go, all right, I know how that one works. So the most recent card in the game, which I've learned how it works, is the one which comes with two of your player counters. And then whenever you're completing one of these conservation projects you can use a maximum of one of these counters to count as if it was an icon that you needed. So going back to the previous example, if you need five Africa icons to get that card, then you actually only need four of them if you've got this special card because then you can just remove one of the cards. And there's like a few cards like that in the game that do that. But yeah, so many different unique cards. Some of them are really simple. Some of them are like, here's an animal, it costs this money, and it's got four appeal, done. That's it. (laughs) And then other ones are like, well, you play this, it's got an immediate ability. It's got an ability that happens every time you do a certain thing. It's got an income ability and it's got an end of game ability. You're like, boom, you know, there's a lot going on. Yeah. Now let me ask you, are the rules your number one, just out of curiosity? No. They're not mine either. So let okay. me ask what you thought about the rule books, because this does it very different than most games that I've seen. Yeah. Whereas there's a main rule book. But you don't know all the rules once you've read the main rule book. You know how to do the basic actions of the game. But then there's this separate rule book, which kind of goes into card clarifications and things like that. But there are rules at the beginning of that rule book. Yeah. Which I didn't realize when I first played. And I'm like, what is going on here? I've never seen a rule about this. And then there's an icon guide, which, by the way, has unique rules on there that are not anywhere else on either of these other rule books. Yeah. So that when I first played, I'm like, I don't even know how to figure out what this does. I had only read the regular rules. I'm trying to play and I'm like, I have no, I've never seen this before. (laughs) Like, I don't know how am I supposed to figure this out? The rules are, I think are very good when you get all of them, but you just have to realize that they're in literally three different places and there's not really any overlap in those either. Yeah. I I mean, I thought just taking the actual original, uh, the base rule book for, for now, I thought overall it was quite well written. I thought it was very clear and all of the questions that I had that I think could occur during the game were all answered and they were in there and, and that was fine. I do agree that I, mean, I, I also think it's fine to have a secondary book as a look, here's an appendix with here's a whole list of all extra stuff that you, you, you might not even come across in your first game, but we're going to put that in another book because otherwise 
the main book would have been too big. And it also has the advantage that you can pass that around the table separate from the rule book. I think what it was missing was possible, and this might be in there and I might have missed it, is just some kind of forward at the start to say, note, this rule book that you're reading now has all of the rules for the main game in there. However, you will need to refer to this other book for certain clarifications and explanation of what some of the things do. But as you say, there's actual rules in that book as well. Yes. Well, that, that was the weird part. Like if it was just the appendix and it was just the, it almost felt like they ran out of pages for the rule book. Yeah. And like, they're like, well, we've got this other book here that we don't need all the pages for. Let's just put some rules on the front of it. Yeah. It, it was very confusing to me because I was like, I thought I know what I was doing, but I'm like, wow, that rule isn't covered anywhere. Yeah. But no, there it was right on the front of this other rule book. I'm like, all right, for no reason. Well, being somebody who has spent years as a rulebook editor, that is um, I like. So I, we're, we're almost finishing the rules on Batman Gotham City Chronicles. There are two or three pages of rules that were in the original rulebook that we have now taken out of the original rulebook, and they are in the mission book. And this is this is a similar thing. So this mission book is basically a booklet of all of the different missions that come with the game. Are they like the campaign rules or whatever, though? No, no, no. It's just, here's a series of missions on how you set up the board, what the objectives are for that. No, but I'm saying the rules that you've moved to the other book, do they at least correspond to that rule book? They correspond. So the rules that we've moved out are the rules for different types of terrain, which is based on the map that you're using. And the description of all of the maps is in the mission book. So the mission book is- Yeah, so that doesn't bother me. And the maps, and we've moved them out. But that, it's a similar thing. I'm sure there'll be some people who complain and say, well, I wanted to find the rules on something and it was in the mission book. Why is it in the mission book? Now, we've had a good reason why it's in the mission book because <laughs> we felt right. that that was the, mo- the more logical place for it. But Right, so you don't have to pull out the main rule book exactly. after time. But yeah. in this, this did not make sense to me because it feels like those weren't rules you were going to have to refer back to often. Yeah, it, it literally felt like they ran out of pages in the rule book, yeah. and they're like, "Well, we got a free page here, we'll, so let's we'll do in. it." Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, it didn't bother me. It's not my number one point either, but I, I feel, figured that was a good time to talk about it because we were kind of yeah. talking about rules. All right, let's get to our number ones: the action selection mechanism. So that card row at the bottom? Yeah, the card row at the bottom. Which Now, I've not played Civilization A New Dawn. I have. I love that game. And it's exactly the same mechanism from that? Yep, exactly the same. So in that one, it's more complicated because the further up it could be could affect the terrain type that you're allowed to move on, or it could affect the number of spaces you move, or it could... So based on the card, it's different. And it's different here a little bit, but it's just numbered one through five. And typically it has to do with one through five. Whereas there, it's a little bit more wonky. I think they do a good job of streamlining it here. Yeah. And it it sounds simple. And when I first played it, I was like, all right, yeah, okay. So basically the card that's in the number five spot will be its most powerful. And then once you've played it, it moves down to the number one spot and everything moves up, making the other cards more powerful. And you kind of want to do your cards when they're on the fifth position because then they're most powerful. That's what I thought when I first went into it. Now I've right. played it quite a few times. <laughs> the amount of flexibility that you've got is actually really good. And there are some times where I have done an action, moved it to the number one spot, and then done it again on the next turn. And you might think, well, why, why have you done it again when it's only on the number one spot? And it really depends on it. So for example, the build action, yep, you can build one building, unless you've upgraded the card, you build one building of a size up to the slot that that was in. So if it's in slot number five, 
you can build one size five building or you could build a size four or a size three. So I had it in slot five and I went, boom, right, I'm going to build and I built a size five building. And then the card went down to the number one position. And then on my next turn, I was looking at it and I was like, right, so my associates in five, but I don't really want to do that, but I don't want to, I don't want to move it. My sponsors is in four and I don't have a sponsor. This is it and that. And I looked at it and I went, I'll tell you what, on my next turn, I'm going to build for one. Because that was actually, I think it was like there was a break imminent and it was going to happen soon or something like that. Right, and you needed and money or whatever. It was just, and I wanted to build a kiosk or for whatever reason, or I had a size one animal in. I think that was it. I had a size five animal in hand and a size one animal in hand. Yep. So you just needed a one. I just, I just needed a size one enclosure. So I was like, yeah. right, yeah. And that's the thing. Don't dismiss low value cards and think, oh, it's in the one position. I'm going to ignore it until it gets to like the three, four or five sometimes you will want to do actions that are down in the one and two because it's the right thing to do at the time. Well, and if you have like a three sponsor in your hand, you don't need to get it to five no, exactly. to play a three sponsor. It only needs to be on that three spot. Yep. And you cycle it back to the beginning because maybe you have a three sponsor and a five sponsor. So that gets it back to the five yeah. faster. Yeah. If you sp- if you don't wait till it goes all the way up to the five spot. Yeah. No, I think it's a very clever system for sure. And I loved it in the original game and i love it here too and it's actually my number one point as well right so i've got a question for you have you ever taken the action where you don't actually do anything with the card but you pick the card up move it to the number one spot and take an x token instead i have yeah you wouldn't think you do that no but but you do but (laughs) you get two benefits and especially toward the end of the game you're getting two benefits because you're moving a card that was at the top of the row that you're never going to use and moving it to the back of your row, which pushes everything else up and you get an X. So yeah. these X tokens, you can put them on the card and it just adds one to the number. And so as Paul was saying earlier, you can actually build things like so for the upgraded build action, you get to build as many buildings as you want. They just all have to be different. So yeah. if you have X tokens you could actually, and it's on the five spot, you have two X tokens, you can actually build up to seven sizes worth of buildings. So you could build a five and two ones, you could build a five and a two, you could build a three and a four. There's a bunch of different one size buildings, you could do that. So so there's lots of different options you have, the more X's you have, which gives you more additional options for these cards. And for example, some of the sponsors are value six. Well, there's only five spots, so you have to get an X token to even play them. Yeah. So no, I actually think it's for an action that seems very invaluable because you're giving up one of these major actions you need. I actually think it's a very valuable action at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. So the only thing I wanted to add to that, did you have any more you want to talk about the the card row? I, I just wrote the word puzzle and Ironically, I wrote it twice. Uh, so I, I write not only my five things, but I write like little notes under it. And two of my five points under it were that it, the puzzle is so amazing. And this is really where the puzzle of the game comes in. And then the first couple of times I played it, I didn't see it. I was just doing what you said. I'm playing my number five card. Now I have a new number five card. I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to do it again. And no, <laughs> like, especially as you get toward the end of the game, that might work early in the game, but later in the game, you definitely don't want to do it. And animals, for example, before you upgrade that animal card, literally, if it's in the two through four spot, it does the exact same thing. Yeah. It literally lets you play one animal on the one spot. You can't play any. On the five spot, you can play two animals, but you don't always need to play two animals. So literally, when that's on the two spot, it could be just as good as on any other spot on that board. So you may have to find one thing to do to push it back up again, or you can use an X to play it again, back-to-back turns. So yeah, no, 
the amount of puzzliness, people who love puzzly Euro games or even things like Spirit Island, where you're trying to figure out this puzzle and you're just trying to figure out exactly how to make it work the way you need it to. I think this card row provides that for you. It provides that puzzle. Yeah, very much. And as you said, especially at the end of the game, when you're trying to puzzle out those last couple of moves, it's like, okay, I need to do this, but I have to do this first because yeah. before I can play animals, I got to build pen form. Or maybe instead I play a goal card, which sends one of my animals away from my zoo, yeah. which takes away from my appeal points, but gives me conservation points, which are worth more. And then I've got an open pen now that I can add this other animal that I've got sitting in my hand. So the, the combo-y stuff you can do the thinking ahead two or three turns stuff you can do is pretty amazing. And it's all based on this card row and the puzzle that it creates. Yeah. I, I agree with you. So for both of us, it's our number one. Yep, definitely. And we, we didn't really touch upon the fact that you can upgrade these cards as well. Yeah. You flip them over and they become more powerful versions of, of the base cards, but you, you're not going to be able to upgrade all of your cards during the game. I think you can either upgrade three or four, depending on which upgrade options you take. But if you skip that bonus on the on the second conservation point, if you take the worker at that point instead of the card flip, you're only going to be able to flip three cards in the game instead of four. And it's choosing which ones to flip. And do you tend to flip the same ones over and over? Um, I generally like to make donations. So I, yeah. like to, I like to flip the association card. I also like to flip the build card because I try to build my entire board if i can it all depends which map you're using to see which and it also depends which cards come out as well yep i will possibly upgrade the animal card if i manage to draw a super amazing animal that requires my animal card to be upgraded but that's that's one of the ones that isn't generally upgraded the cards card i always look at that and think oh is it really worth upgrading this? yeah that's the one i tend not to upgrade if i'm going to yeah. skip one it tends to be the card one now it's still a great card because you let you draw more cards. And I mean, honestly, today I could have used that card upgraded because I needed more cards basically all game. I felt like I had unlimited money. I had a lot of pens on my board. I just needed more animals to be able yeah. to put on my board and I just never had it. So I think it came back to bite me today, but that tends to be the one I don't do as frequently. Uh-huh. But so I do think there's a good balance and I think it's going to depend on your situation game to game because I think if you can get a good early economy, getting more cards is very beneficial and certainly being able to build multiple buildings on a turn is beneficial as well. That way you can prepare for those cards and animals you've drawn into your hand. So it all ties together real well. I think we've been gushing enough about this game, Paul. Let's just uh, sum it up with some final thoughts for yourself. If it isn't my number one game of 2021 then I'm not sure what is. I, I traditionally publish my game of the year at some point the year after. So what I've just done in December of 2021, for example, I did a video which is my top 10 games of 2020. So I normally do it a year after everybody else. And the reason I do that is if I did my top 10 games of 2021 at the end of 2021, that's unfair on all of those games that came out in 2021 that I haven't played yet. Right. You know, I haven't yet played Boone Lake. I haven't yet played Bitoku. So if I did video at the end of 2021, it wouldn't have included those games. And that's not fair. So I haven't officially published my top 10 games of 2021 yet. But Ark Nova is definitely in contention if it, if it isn't. It's so enjoyable to play. And I, I say on my channel a lot of times that there are some great games that I absolutely love playing. But once I've played them five or six times, I'm done. I've got my yeah. enjoyment out of that game and it was a brilliant game. And I really enjoyed it, but five or six plays and I'm like, yeah, okay. 
And then there are other games which I could easily play 100, 200 times and still never get bored. And Ark Nova is one of those. Yeah, there's a lot of game in there. There's so much. And that is the variability of, and it's the same with Terraforming Mars, is you've got this big deck, over 200 unique cards, and you've got variable boards and you've got variable conditions and you it's, it's a puzzle you get the game out and you go right here we go we've done the setup here's my starting cards okay what am i going to do and then as the game goes on you'll draw more and more cards and you're like right how am i going to do the best thing i can with with what i've got and the way the the way it plays out and yeah i think i'm at 12 or 13 games of it so far only three of them have been solo i think three or four have been solo but yeah as i said i can't see me getting bored of it anytime soon and it'd be so easy for them to expand it as well. Yeah, but I don't want them to expand it too much. A, yeah. a lot of games, when they're get when they already big, and then the expansion, it's like, oh, what? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not a huge fan of some expansions. But if it was just more cards and more endgame goal cards, I think that would be fine. It's not going to affect you from game to game. As long as the balance is, is kept, then then yeah, that's fine. Yeah. So let me ask you, what is your favorite player count? I know we're, you know, you don't have to say solo just because we're on one stop co-op shop here. <laughs> uh, two. Okay. I, yeah. I, I know this is a, a one stop co-op shop <laughs> podcast, but I would always, if given the choice, play a multiplayer game rather than a solo game. That's not to say that I don't love solo gaming, but having played Ark Nova now at three players a few times, I'm not sure I want to play it at three players again. It was essentially for me, exactly the same experience, but in a lot longer. Yeah. So two for me would be would be great, but if I can't get two, I'll play one. I mean, what, one of the thing, one of the crazy thoughts that I had for my channel is I was going to do a whole day live streaming where I play through all of the Ark Nova boards one after another. Your head rate is going to explode by the I, end. I, of I, it. I just yeah, oh yeah, I'd have to get the clone out halfway through just to just to take over from me. But you know, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I love playing the game solo. But I think my my best play account for the game would be two. Yeah, and I think I agree with you. Actually, I do think uh, I, I love what it does for solo. And I mean, I'll be an advocate for it. Certainly, I would say I would play this solo over a lot of games in my collection. Yeah. But I do think it shines it too. I think there's something about that break track that is very interesting. Controlling the timing is very interesting. Watching what other people are doing. It's not going to be totally focused on what other people are doing. But there are certainly some actions in the game where you're like, oh, yeah, I know you want to do that thing. I'm going to stop you. Or I know you need a break. I'm going to slow it down and not use those cards that move the break track. And I'm going to win this economic game that I'm ahead in the race in right now. So I do think there is an added element with a two-player game. I agree with you about three and more players, though. It just, it makes the game too long. So definitely solo and two-player for me all day, just like uh, it sounds like it is for you. And I obviously love it, too. Best game of the year for you? Um, Probably not my best game of the year. Okay. I, I think Arnak beats it out just because it's so fast and simple and that puzzle for me now is it going to have the stability of something like arkanova i don't know but as far as fast simple but with mind melding like i gotta think five moods ahead and i gotta get this to do this to do that like that is more my speed i think arkanova is just a bit too much for me but it's certainly a great game yeah i mean you're splitting hairs a little bit yeah but I agree with you. I mean, there's one thing that you said earlier on that resounded me with me is that there's at least a couple of turns in Ark Nova where you're like, right, I'm going to play this animal, right? It's a really simple action. I'm going to play this animal. But what does that animal do? Well, that animal has moved me up the reputation track, right? So I've moved up the reputation track. That triggers that icon. 
which allows me to do this. Oh, and also I flip this enclosure and when I flip this enclosure next to that, I do this. Right, so what have I gained? I've gained this bonus, which gets me that, which means I move this up that track, which triggers this bonus and I get five money. That's at the upper limit of what I can deal with. <laughs> yeah, and it doesn't happen every turn, no. but there's certainly two or three times a game where it does happen. Yeah. And it's like, oh, wait, did I do that? Did I get that? I, yeah. Let's put it this way. At the end of every game of Art Nova, I'm not sure that I played it right. I, probably everyone I've ever played. I'm like, I probably missed something somewhere. Whereas every game of Lost Ruins of Arnak I've played, I know I played it right at the right. end. And I was it was a satisfying experience. So for me, that's why it pips it just a little bit. But we had some great co-op games come out, like the new crew game. I'm a huge fan of Marvel Champions. I don't know if you play that one, but I mean, all the content that's been coming out for that's great. I really liked, I don't know if you played, it's a dungeon crawl called Adventure Tactics. No, I haven't. No. That one was really good for me. If you like leveling systems. Yep. There's nothing special about the combat. In fact, it's kind of a deck builder. As you level, you get new cards unique to the class you're leveling into your hand, and you just play it. And it might be move, it might be attack or whatever, and I think you play two cards a turn. I mean, okay. combat's super straightforward, but the leveling is so cool because I might want to become a death knight. So I'm going to have to take two levels in fighter and one level of mage to then level my next time into this death knight. So it's these really fast combats, back-to-back combats that level you up and get you new cool stuff. I mean, it's like 30 minutes of playing a super fast boss battler and then 30 minutes of leveling up into these really cool classes that you're figuring out. I'll look into that. I I mean, I really like it. I think it was Tom Vassell's number two game of last year after Ark Nova. Right. For me, it was my number one because we didn't cover Ark Nova last year. That'll be on the list for this year. Right. The way we do year-end lists is different than what you do as well. We do whatever games we covered that year. Right. So it could be Pandemic that we covered this right. year. Okay. And, and that'll be in our ranking list at the end of the year. Right. So we only rank things that we've reviewed on the podcast, which tend to be the top games of the year for us. Because if we play something and hate it, we don't do enough episodes of the podcast to cover everything. Right, gotcha. And, and we tend to, as you've seen here, dig deeper into the game. So I'm not playing something six to ten times that is not great for me. Yeah. So we tend to cover our new favorite games, if even one of us likes it, we tend to cover that much more uh, so than games that we didn't like. So I think it's still a pretty good representation of what our top game of the year would be, Yeah, even with those restrictions. Cool. Paul, you know what? I've taken up a lot of your time today. I know we're going to talk about the different kind of Euro games. We'll do that another time. Yeah, we can hold that conversation for another time. It was great having you on. I'm sure there's going to be another game we both fall in love with this year. And look, Mike's not going to cover any Euro solo games here so i'll definitely bring you back we'll talk about the different ways you can score and just the different type of stuff you can do to make a euro game into a solo games which ones work and which ones don't work so much for us yeah future podcast yes future podcast look forward to it but before i let you go today let's hear again about your channel about your patreon let us know all about you before you go yeah, Gaming Rules Videos is the YouTube channel, and there's, there's lots of stuff on there. There's a mixture of tutorial videos, how-to-play videos, lots of playthrough videos, and various other things as well. And yeah, it's all supported through the Patreon campaign, so it's patreon.com forward slash gaming rules. One of the things that my Patreon supporters have access to is we have a Slack channel, of which there's a, there's a great community of people on there, but I do a lot of behind-the-scenes videos. So today is a classic example. I did a live stream of Lost Runes of Arnak this afternoon, which was public. But in order to prepare for that, I had to get the game out, 
relearn how to play, relearn how to play the solo mode, and then practice playing with the Mystic character because I'd never played it before. And I always do quite a bit of preparation before any live stream. And I do all of that as behind the scenes videos. So if you think that I've got a lot of content on my channel, there's, uh, there's not quite double, but there's a lot of extra content on the channel, which is all behind the scenes videos, which is not really suitable for, for the public because it's me basically practicing for the live stream. But I started doing this a lot during lockdown because a lot of people were stuck at home and a lot of people really appreciated the fact that I was basically live streaming a lot of the background work that I do. And I've kind of kept it. It's a good dry run for me to do it. And there's always quite a few people in the chat keeping me company while I'm doing it. So yeah, Patreon supporters get access to a lot of extra behind the scenes videos as well. That's awesome. It's so funny how as content creators, we have to come up with extra content to provide to Patreon backers, things like that. And I think a lot of them would do it even if you didn't provide this extra stuff. But there's a lot of work that goes into this. (laughs) People don't realize, yes, it's fun and it's a hobby, but it's work too. So definitely, like we said earlier, feel free. I mean, you should support your favorite content creators. Obviously, you can't support everybody, but Paul's a great one out there. He makes great videos. He obviously does prep work for his videos. You could tell sometimes on my stream that I don't always do as much prep as I should because I'm like, I don't know how that rule works. I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> <laughs> That's where the live chat helps. I mean, I've, I've done some videos on my channel and I've not done one of these for a while, actually, but it was quite good fun where I literally learn how to play a game from the rule book on the video. Now, I've, I've done a few of these public. I do a lot of these private because if I'm going to sit down and I'm going to learn how to play a game, well, I might as well live stream it because... You know, patron supporters like doing that. But I've actually done a few of those public. And it's actually the feedback that I've had. I remember the first time after doing one, I went to Gen Con and I had so many people coming up to me saying, oh, I saw that video where you literally just unboxed it and then live on video, learn how to play the game from the rule book. And I mean, I mean it, it sounds silly. It sounds like, well, wait a minute. We're watching a video of Paul reading through a rule book. That, that sounds <laughs> crazy. But it wasn't just me reading. It was me reading, doing. And what was interesting from the people that have fed back to me about that video, and I need to do another one of these at some point, is they said it was fascinating watching you as this rules expert, whatever, struggling with certain points because they they do exactly the same. Oh, that is interesting because I thought you were going to go another way. No, no, no. They were saying it was really good for us to see you struggling with a rule book and getting confused by things and then working it out and going, oh, that's explained here, which is exactly what they do. When I think we have a, a little bit of an advantage over a lot of people as well, because they want us to put out good content where we get the rules right. Yeah. A lot of times publishers will get and designers will get back to us pretty quickly. I don't right. know if you have that same level of direct contact as someone who normally plays games, because that's the one thing. But I people know I always harp on bad rule books. Yeah. And that that is the one thing that is an advantage of this side. But I'll still say it's a bad rule book. Like yeah. even if the even if the designer gets back to you right away. Like there are certain games I find almost unplayable with their rule books. Uh, Plaid Hat's a famous for that. Yeah. Like three page rule books that don't tell you how to play the game at all. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what are you doing here? And I love Plaid Hat. One of my favorite games of all time, Summoner Wars, like yep. th- their first one. I love a lot of the stuff they come up with, but they need a better rule book writer. That's they for do. sure. They sh- yeah. should have hired you, Paul. They should. Yeah, but not, not anymore. I mean, I do rule book consultancy now. So maybe uh, maybe if they were interested, then uh, then I can do rulebook consultancy, where they basically send it to me and I go back to them and I say, no, it's rubbish. 
Right. Uh, no, this is unplayable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So no, I've, d- I've done a few rulebook consultancies. I actually started doing them last year because I'd taken on too much rulebook work, but then some games came out and the, co- and the publisher contacted me and said, oh, we'd like you to do the rulebook editing on this. And I was like, oh, this looks really interesting. This looks fascinating, but there's no way that I can fit it in. But how about you send me the game, you send me a prototype, I will do a live private video just for you where I try to play the game from the rulebook with you sat there watching it, and then by the end of that video, you will know, and then and then I'll give you some feedback at the end. And that was great. That is a great service. Now you're still doing that? And I'm still doing that, and I'm still doing that now. So basically, one publisher a couple of weeks ago sent me a prototype of a game that had never been seen before outside of the company. So this was a very much a prototype of the game, and it was very much the first draft of the rulebook, and they wanted me to consult on is this the right structure of the rulebook? Was there anything that happened in the game that we hadn't covered? It was full of typos. It was full of bad language. But my role in it was to do very, very high level consultancy on what I think the rulebook structure should be and everything else. Other publishers will literally send me the final rulebook of a game and a very high quality prototype and say, Paul, we're about to go to print with this rulebook. Please try and play the game from the rulebook and let us know if we've missed anything major. And I think, not that I'm trying to sell my services to Plaid Hat, but I think that's what Plaid Hat might need, maybe just at the at the end of the process. Right. If they were to just send it to me and I'd read through it and I'll go, well, wait a minute, you've put 12 pages of front-loading information before even telling me how you win the game. You know, you need to do something with that. But I mean, I always say it's down to the publisher. The publisher needs to decide how much they care about having a good rule book. And a lot of publishers will say, we care. But then there are some publishers that constantly put out bad rule books well, and are known yeah. to put out bad rule books <laughs> yep. and still don't do anything about it. At that point, I, to be honest, I, I have less interest in their games because if they're not going to go to the due diligence and time and effort to make a good rule book, then why should I have to spend a, an entire day reading FAQ and forums to learn out how to play their game? It's like, no, it's, it's not worth it. Yeah. The other company I'm thinking of, I don't get their games as much and we haven't had good things to say about their games in the past yeah and the rule books are terrible well we'll talk off camera because if because there are a couple <laughs> of companies who have a bad reputation who have since decided to do something about it and at that point i'm interested you know if they actually have said okay we hold our hands up we acknowledge this we know this has been bad and we're going to do something about it and this is what we're doing i'll give them another chance absolutely so, yeah absolutely all right, Paul. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, no, I think that end rulebook discussion is going to help because we usually do a design discussion because we're designers ourselves. Yeah. And I think a lot, half of our audience is not necessarily even co-op fans, but just stay for the design discussion. So you got a little bit of one at the end, not the one we originally planned, but certainly having the gaming rules guy on. I'm glad we talked about rulebooks, actually. That was probably a much better design discussion to have with you anyway. Yeah. And anything, yeah, if you want to ping me anytime about any rulebook stuff, even though I've retired from it, I'm more than happy to chat and give advice and things like that. Perfect. All right, Paul. Well, thank you so much for coming on and uh, we'll see you next week, everybody. I'll see you next time. Thank you very much, Peter. Bye. Thanks for joining us again for the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. Also, join us for games and discussion on our Discord channel. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash one stop or leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and we'll see you next week for another top five list. Hey, Paul. Go on.
I want to build a zoo in my backyard now. Yeah, well, do you want me to let you into a secret? What's that? I've actually got a tiger in the room with me, and I've forgotten to build the enclosure. And he's getting very, very hungry. No!